welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. We have, over the last few weeks, been in a series that we are calling Revolutionary, looking at how the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus in three years and really every year since then has turned our world upside down. Now, one of the things I said to you early on, to us early on, is that the revolution of Jesus is both universally appealing and repelling. As in, there are things that Jesus says that we're like, yes, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so proud to be a Jesus follower. Even if you're not a Jesus follower, you're like, wow, Jesus said that? That's incredible. That's amazing. And there are other things that he said that we wish he hadn't said. And over these last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the beautiful but disruptive things that Jesus has said. That he waves no flag for no country or no political party. Um, that he invites us to not only love people we love, but to love our enemies, to bless people, even those who are against us. That he invites us to uh, think about our lives as um, not just how do we follow laws, um, but how do we do what love requires. We've listened to him point uh, the finger away from how we do other people and what's out there to in here and saying, hey, we all, all saints are sinners. There's all stuff, there's stuff in all of us on the inside that needs to be saved and healed and restored. We've listened to him invite us into a way that thinks about our lives and our time and our money as something to be given away, even if we feel like we have nothing to give. These are all revolutionary, world-changing things that Jesus said and did both 2,000 years ago and still today. But today we come to probably some of the most troubling and challenging things that Jesus ever said. As we talk today about how the revolution of Jesus meets the sexual revolution. A revolution of relationships and people and the way we see um, ourselves and our identity, our sexuality, and all things related to intimate relationships. And even as I talk about that, um, I need to be honest with you that this is a, this is a difficult subject to speak on. Um, I'm not going to say everything that can or should be said. We just don't have enough time. In many ways, some of what I'm going to say will probably raise more questions. It might make us all, I'm and in fact, probably all of us will feel uncomfortable or unsettled in some way. I'm hoping actually, though, that all of us feel some comfort in some way as well. To be honest, I'd rather not preach this. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's such a personal, sensitive thing for so many of us. But there's two reasons why I know I have to. First of all is I love you. I'm sitting here looking into a camera, but I see you. I see your faces. I, most of you, I know you. You have been good enough and humble enough to share your lives and your stories with me. So I know your stories. I know your struggles. I know your situations. You need to know that every week when I sit down to write my sermon, you're all sitting around my desk in a circle. I think of you. I pray for you. I say, God, what do they need to know? And because I love you, we have to talk about this. But secondly, because we need Jesus. There's so many voices, our own, our own included, speaking into this issue in the middle of the sexual revolution, and we need to hear Jesus' voice. So stay with me through this. I'm not, my goal isn't to try to convince you to believe what I believe, 
to convince you to see it from my point of view. My, room, my, my, my goal is simply to make space for Jesus, for us to hear what he has to say on this. And so I thought we could just um, uh, take a few moments to pray before we jump in. And even as you listen, as you stay with me kind of through this message, there may be questions that come up in home groups this week. You're going to have a chance to talk about it together. You can reach out to me or any one of our pastors as you're not just thinking about this in theory, but saying, what does this mean for me in my particular life circumstance? Whether you are married or single or divorced, whether you are straight or gay, whether you are think- you're thinking, what does this mean for me? Whether you're a young person contemplating relationships in the future or you're an older person looking back on the relationships that you've had, whether you feel like you're in a good place or you're struggling, we're all kind of in the same boat um, when it comes to this. And so I just want to pray for us, and, uh, and then we jump in today. So Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you speak into all of the situations in our, in our lives, that our faith is very much about everyday life. And that you have lived and walked in our shoes. You know what it is to be human. You know what it is to struggle. You know what it is to be in relationships with others. And so teach us today, Lord Jesus. Help us hear your voice. And may your voice bring the right amount of disturbance into our lives and the right amount of comfort as well. We thank you that we can trust you. In your name, amen. And when we talk about the sexual revolution, truthfully, we are actually in what um, some people are calling a third wave of sexual revolution. The first one being the 1920s, the second one being the 1960s, and the third one, in a sense, maybe the 2020s. And when we talk about sexual revolution, what we mean is that the ideas of family and sexual orientation and gender are being given to us as both the freedom and the right and the responsibility to say, hey, You need to define what family is going to look like for you. You need to choose what sexual orientation you are. You need to understand um, what gender you identify as. That all of these things are, in a sense, up for definition, and we are having constant conversation about it. Now, even as I bring up this idea that the revolution of Jesus meets the sexual revolution, we're going to get into it today. I know that for all of us, for all kinds of reasons, it can bring up um, anxiety, fear, and anger. There are many people who have an anger towards the church or those who represent Jesus because if we're honest, the church has done a lot of damage into how it has addressed the sexual revolution. In general, I think it's safe to say that many of us have experienced the church or, you know, the people of God or or people who represent God or maybe we think God as having a tone and a posture that is angry and judgmental and harsh and exclusive. It seems that that Christians or the church have reserved its most scathing words um, and accusations for um, people in the gay community for people um, who would disagree with the church's sexual ethic. And not just in words and tone, but in action. The church has done so much damage by excluding people who think differently um, than them, by certain groups of people saying, you don't belong here. Some of us have maybe experienced being kicked out of communities because of what we believed or because of our sexual ethic or our sexual orientation or what we uh, professed our belief to be. Many of us maybe have experienced being ostracized by our families because of that. 
The church has even had an active role in things like shock therapy in the past, which has done so much damage uh, to people along the way, not just in tone and posture, but in our actions. Likewise, I think the church honestly has been very hypocritical, treating certain sins like gossip and rage and anger and slander as somehow lesser than other sexual sins. And it's sort of been hypocritical, even though the scriptures actually list them all together and say they're all the same thing. They're all part of the same thing. The church has been hypocritical in the sense that it has outwardly uh, judged other people for their sexual activity and yet inside covered up all kinds of sexual dysfunction uh, within the church and amongst church leaders. And we can just say that's wrong. And so it brings up a lot of anger. People would say, this, this is wrong. This isn't right. Or at the very least, people say, well, the church is so irrelevant, so out of touch with this subject. And so even as we talk about it today, I recognize that's where many of us come from, or that's where the people close to us come from when we think about this subject. Likewise, I think there's anger for people within the church or frustration or fear towards the media or the culture. And whereas in the past, maybe the church um, and religion has been seen as, as aggressive and intolerant of other people's views. And yet now, People often feel that the media and the culture um, are aggressive and intolerant of anyone who disagrees with the prevailing sexual ethic. And so there's anger and angst all over the place. And even for people of Jesus followers who within the church would disagree with each other about how we're supposed to think about the sexual revolution. So can I just say this? I think we need to find a place of common ground. And I would say this, we do actually have common ground. Because we are all made beautiful and broken. That is our common ground. We are all made beautiful and broken. We're all in the same boat. See, many of us think, well, oh, the revolution applies to other, to other people, the other side. Um, I remember uh, several years ago when legislation around marriage and gay marriage was coming uh, in our country. And several churches took up this call to save marriage. And I remember thinking, save marriage from who? The heterosexuals destroyed marriage long before gay people wanted to be married, right? M the marriage institution itself was in tatters, in rags, destroyed, not because gay people wanted to be married, but because people who were already married had, in a sense, destroyed it long before. And so we talk about saving marriage. It's like saying, oh, no, we got to save it from those other people not realizing everyone has made a mess of this. We are all in the same boat. Likewise, people who want to say, hey, this is an era of sexual freedom. We shouldn't tell people what they should and shouldn't do. Everybody should have the freedom to decide that the sexual revolution often ignores the fact that with sexual freedom has actually become, have, has come increasing sexual slavery and addiction. A study done by Media Smarts in Ontario high schools a few years ago found that two-thirds of grade 11, 12 boys were regular users of pornography, setting themselves up for lifelong battles with addiction. That there's such a thing as sex addiction. Or that as many people are um, moving towards uh, discussions of gender identity and gender change and gender transition and gender reassignment, um, psychotherapists, doctors, not, not even Jesus followers are pumping the brakes saying, hey, this is too soon to be giving too much direction on. We don't actually know the longitudinal impact of all of this. And we have people who are wanting to transition and other people who are detransitioning saying, I transitioned, but I was too young to know what I was doing. I need to go back. 
And so we actually need to realize, no, it isn't just, oh, those other people who need a revolution or those other people who think differently than me that need to change. We're all in the same boat. We are all beautiful and broken, which is to say we all need the revolution of Jesus. And so I'm praying that we can be open to that today. Now we might say, oh, this stuff isn't this is far beyond Jesus' scope. You know, like this is a different day than when Jesus lived. This is a totally different culture. 2,000 years ago, so many things have changed. Or many people would say, well, Jesus didn't really talk about this, did he? Well, actually, even though this is 2,000 years later from when Jesus walked and talked on the earth, what he said then about um, marriage and family and sexuality was not only revolutionary then, it is still revolutionary now. And we still need his words to bring wisdom into this conversation for us today. And the scripture we're going to look at actually begins with a conversation about marriage and morphs or evolves into something that actually uh, speaks into many of the issues that we are dealing with in the sexual revolution today. So I want you to listen as it's read for us. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him and t to test him. They said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then why, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immortality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The ones who can accept this should accept it. This is, I think, one of the least talked about passages when it comes to conversations about the sexual revolution and relationships, and yet it is one of the most important. And I want to unpack it a little bit for us today. It begins with actually a conversation and a question about marriage that, in fact, we say it was actually a question that began with redefining marriage, uh, defining or redefining marriage. The um, Pharisees bring this question about divorce um, to Jesus. And this was uh, a question that was debated amongst the rabbis in those days. But the prevailing sort of culture that Jesus was addressing had made it very easy for men to divorce women. It was a very, it's actually a very easy thing to do. And I say men to divorce women because, just so we know a little bit about the context here, a woman very rarely, almost never, would seek to divorce herself from her husband. Because in those days, as a woman, your well-being, your financial security, and your identity was wrapped up in your marriage. 
Uh, for you, your goals would be to be married so that you could be financially cared for by a good and honorable husband so that you could have children and that you could establish yourself in the culture, in the family, um, in society as someone who was looking after the home, the domicile, and look, raising children, bearing and raising children. This would have been your identity and your goal. And so uh, a woman would not seek to be divorced because... Uh, if a woman was divorced, it meant she, she would lose her livelihood. She would be instantly sort of have no income overnight. And also socially and religiously, she would have been considered sort of damaged goods if she uh, got divorced because no woman would actually seek that out, which meant something was wrong with her. So her prospects or her, the uh, possibility of her getting remarried would have been very um, unlikely or low. And because the parents on both sides would have arranged the marriage, if she divorced herself from her husband, she would have brought a lot of shame on her family. So, so, so many things wrong with that, right? In our culture, we say that's wrong. But that was what was going on in the culture, which meant it was men who were divorcing women. And they would regularly do that. There was no shame on them. You know, it was such an uh, unequal society. And so a man could divorce his wife for all kinds of reasons. And this was the context that this was coming up. Um, he could divorce her if she didn't uh, bear him children. She, he could divorce her if he didn't like her, if he wanted a newer, younger model. He could divorce her if he felt like she said something he disagreed with or she wasn't listening or she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. And so it was very easy for men to, by virtue of easy divorce, plunge women into poverty and shame, affecting her not only in the short term, but seriously damaging her future potential to even be a viable member of society. And it would be thrusting her into poverty and shame overnight if he, got, if he divorced her. And yet it was so easy for them to do. And in a sense, the law, some of the Old Testament law around it had permitted that. And so there were different schools of thought amongst the rabbis about how easy it should be or not. And so the Pharisees bring this to Jesus and say, hey, what do you think? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which was probably one school of rabbis' uh, thoughts, um, one rabbi school of thoughts. And so they're bringing it to Jesus saying, hey, is this okay to do? And Jesus, in answering the question, um, which was essentially a question about defining or redefining marriage, doesn't refer to the law. He actually says this. He says, haven't you heard or haven't you read, which was a rhetorical question because they were supposed to have read. If they were Pharisees, they would have known what the scriptures say. And he doesn't go back to the law. It says he goes back to the beginning. Look, he says, haven't you read at the beginning, God made them male and female. At the beginning, God made them male and female. And this is so fascinating. Jesus in this question about divorce actually answers in a way that answers so many questions for us about what the way we think about marriage. He says, this doesn't have anything to do with institution or law or civil law. He says, this has to do with the way the world was made. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. He was referencing the very first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, where it says that God made the heavens and the earth, where he made the sky and the land, where he made the night and the day, where he made the sun and the moon, and where he made the male and the female. See, Jesus was saying marriage is anchored as male and female, a binary pair amongst of other set of binary pairs of day and night and sun and moon and land and sea. 
embedded into the fabric of literally the way the world was made. This is not about civil law. He says, this is about the way the world was made. So no, you cannot just divorce your wife for any and every reason because this isn't a matter of civil law or family law. This is about the way the world was made. God designed male and female as a set of binary pairs along with all of the other binary pairs of creation. Marriage, in a sense, Jesus says, is embedded into the fabric of what makes the world go round. So you cannot just kick your wife to the curb when you don't like her anymore. Which we go, yes, right? Yes, Jesus. And yet at the same time, it's like, whoa, that's defining marriage in a whole different way. And then he goes on to say, he said, and he actually now quotes Genesis 2, the next chapter. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. He says, it's not just that marriage is this thing between a man and a woman that is somehow tied into the core of what makes the world go round. He says also marriage, as a description, is about two people becoming one flesh. And he's quoting Genesis, but the Greek word he uses there is this idea of two things that are separated being fused or glued, or we can even think about two pieces of metal being welded to make something new, one new thing out of the two. Therefore, he says, you cannot just pull it apart. This would have been a revolutionary thing for Jesus to say. This isn't just about law. This isn't just about what makes sense. This isn't just about what you think is okay for you to do. Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, no, at the beginning, this is how it was supposed to be. Marriage embedded as something as core to the universe as the sun and the moon, as the earth and the sky. And this process of God taking two separate people and fusing them into something new, something one that cannot be pulled apart, that should not be pulled apart. You think, wow, that's kind of a revolutionary way to think about it. And it was revolutionary for them too. You know how we know? Because the disciples, look at what they say. They say kind of half jokingly, oh, if this is the case, it's better not to marry, right? Like, and some of them were probably married. I don't know if their wives were nearby, but they probably were like, they, they said that. It was like some of them w- would have been married. Oh my gosh, like really? That's how marriage is supposed to be? It's this thing that's embedded into the universe and you can't just get out of it if you need to. Maybe it's better not to marry, half joking, because of course there there was no viability to be a single person, a male or a female in those days. But they were just like, Jesus, that sounds like an impossible standard to live up to. And you know what? We're kind of glad they say it because we're like, phew, I was thinking the same thing. Right? When Jesus holds up this standard of what marriage is supposed to be, it's impossible. It's in a sense, maybe some of you are sitting there going like, you know, well, I'm divorced or I'm separated or I'm not, I'm not married, but I was hoping to be married or I don't know how that's going to be working for me. I don't plan on being married. How is that possible that that's what it's supposed to be like? And Jesus' disciples say, yeah, maybe better not to marry. That's too hard. Right? The question we might have is Jesus, like, what if I fall short of that? What if my life doesn't look like that? What if I fall short of that? Or even more importantly, what if I don't fit into that definition? 
I think we're thankful that the disciples asked that question because the truth is, in some ways, none of us fit. All of us fall short of that. For those of us that are married, we fall short of this one flesh union all the time, right? All of the time, aren't we pulling apart? Aren't we pulling apart to have our own ways? Aren't all of our arguments based on the fact that we're trying to get our own way? We're not living as one people. We are actually pulling apart, fighting for ourselves. Many of us live in marriages where we're saying, yeah, we're actually two separate people. We just share a house. We get a tax return and, you know, we have marriage benefits. <laughs> but we're really two separate people. Some of us have actually cheated on our spouse. We've been unfaithful to that union, right? Where Jesus says, if you pull that apart and you sleep with another person, that's, that's adultery. But he also said, didn't he, a few chapters earlier, that even if you've lusted at another person, it's like you've committed adultery. How many of us have been unfaithful to our spouse just by who we've looked at? We've been unfaithful to our spouse if we've looked at pornography, if we've looked at another person. We are all falling short of this beautiful, perfect, and seemingly impossible ideal that Jesus sets up. And whether or not we've actually cheated on our spouse, we all live in this way of falling short of it. And Jesus says, no, you, you, you can't separate. Now he does say, there's only one reason, and that is marital unfaithfulness or if your spouse cheats on you, which I don't think he was saying if your spouse cheats on you, you have to separate. And I also don't think I just have to say for a moment that that is the only grounds for divorce. There are other passages in the scriptures that actually would help us understand that things like abuse, um, trauma, or the safety of our children are in question that uh, a couple should actually divorce, that there should be a separation. And so this, this verse, unfortunately, has been used. I know in some cases, I've heard people tell me that encouraging people to stay in abusive marriages, that's not what Jesus was saying. He was addressing a social issue of the way men were pushing women away and thrusting them into poverty overnight. That's not what Jesus was saying. But as we think about this, still even saying this is what the goal is, we impossibly all fall short of it just in the way that we treat each other. Or we might say, I don't fit that, Jesus. I'm not attracted to someone of the opposite sex. Or I'm divorced. Or I'm separated. Or, you know, I'm a woman, but I struggle to feel like I live up to what that's supposed to be. I don't feel like uh, I hate my own body. I don't feel like I'm at home and what I was created to be. Or I'm a man and I feel that same way. All of us in some shape or form fall short of what Jesus holds up. And that's why the disciples say, this is hard. Who can really live up to that? And Jesus is like, you're right. It's hard. It is not easy. But this is what it was meant to be. And yet, the conversation goes on and Jesus begins to say, okay, so what if, what if you don't fit? And he begins to explain what that looks like. But before we move on to that, we just say for a moment, Jesus wasn't just talking about other people or in theory. We have to remember actually that Jesus himself didn't fit either. Jesus didn't fit either. See, the culture into which Jesus came was both Jewish and Greco-Roman. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you were a viable male human being, you were meant to be married. There was no such thing as a legitimate single man. 
your goal, if you were an honorable, good, uh, upstanding man, was to be able to take over the family business, to show yourself as capable of being able to support a wife, and therefore another family would approach your parents and say, hey, we'd like our daughter to marry your son, and they would arrange that, and then you would socially then have your identity and your standing and be seen as an honorable person if you could hold up the family business and run a household and provide for a wife and hopefully kids that she would bear you. That was your social standing. That's what you were supposed to do. That was the goal. Not only socially, but religiously, part of your religious duty in Jewish culture as a man was to be a husband and to raise children. That was part of your religious duty before God. There was no such thing as a viable, good, honorable, single Jewish man. Likewise, in the Greco-Roman culture, family was also equally important, and yet also so was sexual dominance, especially for a man, whether in uh, opposite-sex relationships or same-sex relationships in Roman culture. And in Greek culture, of course, sexuality and the body were, were prized and worshipped as, as beautiful things. And so this is the world that Jesus comes into, a world that is saying it's all about marriage, it's all about relationship status, and it's all about sexuality, especially as a man. And into that culture, Jesus arrives as single, sexually inactive, and happy. (laughs) Right? Jesus didn't fit. All of the culture that he was a part of, and even our 21st century Western culture would look at him today and say, yeah, you don't fit. And so when Jesus begins to describe this, he's not just talking in theory about their situations. He was telling them about their marriages, but he wasn't married. He was single and sexually inactive. He says, okay, I don't fit that paradigm. So what about me? And what about the rest of us? And this is what he goes on to say. What if I fall short? What if I don't fit? And he starts this conversation about eunuchs which is very strange if we don't understand the context of eunuchs, but it actually indicates to us that's why he was doing more than just answering a question about divorce. He was actually talking about all of relationships and sexual identity. He says there are eunuchs. Now, a eunuch uh, in those days in ancient cultures, um, kings and palaces would take men and castrate them so that they could serve, uh, and they would often do that to slaves, so that they could serve in the king's household and the king wouldn't have to worry that this eunuch would become sexually involved with his, his queen or his harem or all these other women or whatever. It was a very different culture than ours, obviously. But that's what they would do. They would, they would make them eunuchs so they, they could not essentially engage in sexual relationships. They could not be married. And so Jesus introduces this person, a eunuch, as something that the rest of his disciples would understand and know. But he broadens the category and he says, listen, here's this picture of what marriage is supposed to be like between a man and a woman for life. And that's very hard to do. But equally hard is an alternative lifestyle. He says there are eunuchs and he gives three categories. He's some that are born that way, some that are made that way, and some that choose that way. Born that way, he said, some who are born with um, different body parts than a man is supposed to have. He was talking about men in that day. We can broaden this to saying people who are born in a way that they are not going to be able to engage in a marriage sexual relationship like the male-female one that God designed. There are going to be people who are born that don't fit that design. Then he said there are people that are going to be made that way by the decisions of other people. Obviously, in the case of a traditional eunuch, it was a decision that somebody else made. But we can broaden that to say there's there's sometimes, whether it's nature or nurture, there are things that other people have done 
That therefore means that we don't fit in the traditional sense of a male-female marriage. Or perhaps you may say, yeah, I want to be married like that, but because what other people have done, in other words, no one's chosen to marry me, I haven't been able to have that ideal. I haven't been able to have that marriage that I want. He said those that, are, those that are born that way, those that are made that way, and then he says those that choose that way. And he introduces probably the most important sentence in this entire conversation. And it was actually Jesus locating himself even within this story. He says, there are those that choose that not to marry for the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of the kingdom. What is Jesus saying? He says, and he's basically saying, this is where I'm at. I am choosing to live this way for the sake of the kingdom, which is to say, what is most important about my identity is not my relationship status with others, is not my sexual activity, is not whether I'm married, but that I have an identity as someone who belongs to God and who lives out the purposes that God has for my life. And in a sense, he was like putting that statement at the bottom to say, for all of us, whether married or single, the choice is to actually become someone who lives the way you live for the sake of God's kingdom. In other words, living out God's purposes for your life. My identity is not ultimately defined by my relationships with others, by my sexual orientation, by my gender. It is ultimately defined by the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. And Jesus says, that's what I'm choosing to do. And yet, he says, this is also difficult. (laughs) It's like he's saying, if you want to follow me, there's no easy way, whether you are married or single. They are equally different, though totally different ways to live. To be married as a man, woman in a lifelong relationship, to be single. These are both, he says, they're hard ways to accept. He says to his disciples, yeah, not many people can actually do this, but if you would choose to follow me, he says, this is the life I'm calling you to live. And both are difficult. I myself know it firsthand. This is the life that you're going to have if you choose to follow me. Either way, you live as married or single for the sake of the kingdom of God. Which only makes sense, friends, if we first know who we belong to already. A few years later, the Apostle Paul would say it this way, your lives are not your own. You belong to Christ. (laughs) which may say, what? Jesus owns me, has the right to tell me what to do? Isn't belonging what we long for ultimately in all of these things? Ultimately, we all long to belong, to be loved. And the scriptures say, Jesus has loved you first. Your identity first begins with who you already belong to. That is to Christ. See, friends, the reason Jesus chose to be single, to not be sexually active, is not because marriage and sexuality and marriage is wrong or bad. 
It's because he was choosing to do something totally new for you and me, which is to say, not only to say, hey, you belong to me, but I am actually starting a new family defined not by marriage, defined not by sexuality, but the fact that you belong to me in a new family identity. The reason Jesus chose to suffer the scorn of a culture that looked at him as a single and sexually inactive man saying, you don't fit, is because he was trying to make something new for us. You and I belong to Jesus and his new family. Look at how Wesley Hill, who's an author and a professor and a gay Christian who is attempting to follow Jesus and Jesus teaching about relationships to the best of his ability. Look what he says in his book, Washed and Waiting. The Christian story proclaims that our bodies belong to God, listen, and have become members of the corporate communal body of Christ. That is the church. The gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over. First, because he created us, right? That's that in the beginning of the world. And second, because he has redeemed us through the work of his son. Our understanding of marriage, singleness, sexuality, all of that begins with the fact that we understand first that we belong to Jesus and we belong to his new family that he has brought us and that he by his own choice to be single and celibate, to not fit into the categories of the way his world and even our world would look at and say, yeah, that's what it means to be a fully human, was to start a new family, which all of us are invited to, all of us belong to, no matter what our sexual orientation is, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our relationship status is, Jesus says, you belong to me and we are a part of a new family together. Just to say, like, none of this makes sense if you don't believe that Jesus actually loved you and gave up his life for you. None of this makes sense if you don't believe that Jesus actually loved you and gave his life up for you. Which is why it's not our job to judge those outside the faith, outside the church. It's not our job to judge those who don't follow Jesus and how they live. In fact, the Apostle Paul, talking about sexuality a few years later, uh, would write this in one of his letters saying, who am I to judge those outside the church? In other words, those who don't have faith, who aren't following Jesus. It's not up to me. He said, I'm talking about people inside the faith. And I think that's so important for us to realize. And unfortunately, the church has totally missed that instruction. It's not our job to judge those outside the church. Our job is to create a family with Jesus at the center, that we all recognize that our identity comes from the fact that we belong to him, that he has pledged to us the love we all long to have. Faithful, committed, unwavering love. The love that, let's be honest, we all fall short of showing in our marriage. We all fall short of finding in any relationship and any sexual pursuit we have. We are all left longing for more. And Jesus says, the more you want is found in me. That's our job as Christians, is to find that belonging in him and to form a family defined not by our marital status, our sexual orientation, or our gender, but defined by the fact that Christ has loved us. And to say to everyone, inside and outside the church, you belong to. That is our job, to pursue that family identity and say these doors to this family, to this household, to this dinner table are open to everyone. 
So what does that mean for us practically as we try to live this out? Well, before we kind of land the plane and I give you a few hopefully practical suggestions for what this means for you, wherever you happen to find yourself in this journey, we're going to pause and let the band lead us in a song that's called One Thing. And it's just a reminder of the fact that at the very beginning, the one thing we know is that we belong to him. Tasting the world, seen more than enough. Its promises fleeting of water and wine. I've emptied the cup and found myself wanting. But there is a well that never runs dry. The water of life, the blood of the vine. Cause all
in light of all of this, it means then you and I approach ourselves, our understanding of our sexuality, our relationships, our status, wherever we happen to be, first with these words, I belong. I belong, therefore. And let me give you a few practical suggestions of what I belong might look like in your life. First, I think it means that married households and single households need to work to pursue deep friendships together. Right? Because ultimately what we are longing for is friendship together. And married people need to realize that that is, that is what is offered to us in the family of God to people who are single, who are not in that place of marriage, who don't have that in their own home, but saying, yes, it's meant to be found in the household of faith. And single people need to realize married people are not completely fulfilled in their marriages. Like all marriages fall short of what they're meant to be. In fact, one of the great um, uh, things that we have done that I think has, has ruined marriage in many ways of the church has held up heterosexual marriages saying, this is ultimate fulfillment. Don't worry, just get married and all of your problems will go away. For many people, it's like, no, that's when they started. Because we have set colossal expectations on marriage to saying, this is what ultimate belonging looks like. And it's like, no, it's not. It's actually belonging to Jesus. And therefore, there are so many people who are disappointed and struggling in their marriage. And so what does it mean for married households and single households to come together and experience a kind of family and a bonding together. And so maybe as things open up again, hopefully soon, you will actually seek each other out knowing that, hey, we're incomplete. Whether we are married or single, we're meant to experience belonging in the family of God. What does it mean to welcome in someone who doesn't fit? <laughs> or welcome in someone who doesn't fit with me or my lifestyle or where I am? What does it mean to form that community together? Secondly, for those of you, there's, uh, I want to encourage you, those of you that would say, yeah, I'm gay. I'm, I'm attracted to the same sex. I want to encourage you to read a book by Rachel Gilson called Born Again This Way. It was her story of actually, um, what does it mean to understand to how to follow Jesus, how to recognize, yeah, I was born this way. What does it mean for me and how I live? In her situation, she actually chose to get married to a man. She said, that hasn't changed my orientation. And she said, I wasn't trying to change my orientation by getting married. But as I met this person, I began to be bonded to him in friendship. And then over time, the sexual attraction, the feelings came. She said, I'm still gay. And this wasn't a form of therapy or somehow trying to heal her of that. It was just something for her. She felt like, I think I want to do this. And she says, if I've pursued that marriage and had a child, it hasn't changed my orientation, but it has changed my understanding of how God has made me and what does it mean to pursue belonging in the family of God. Likewise, we need to understand that gay and straight people need to pursue strong friendships together. Uh, Dr. Nate Collins, who is also um, a gay man, but is married to a woman. And he said, my orientation hasn't changed, but I have a one-woman orientation. Um, he founded the Center for um, Faith and Sexuality and Gender. And he's a professor in the United States. He said, why can't we, why does it mean that if you're single, you have to somehow live alone? Why can't we live together as single people who are all pursuing Jesus together in platonic relationships, whether those are people who are gay or straight, but we actually live together because we're pursuing the same things together in non-sexual platonic friendship that allows us still to experience the community of Christ together and saying, oh, belonging isn't just for people who are married. It's for all of us who belong to Christ. 
For some of us, we need to be redefining what success looks like for our kids and not hold up marriage as saying, yes, this is what ultimate reality is for you and this is where we want you to be and push them in that direction, but actually to say, hey, we don't know actually what God has for your life, but ultimately you belong to Jesus and to his family. That our goals would to see them actually become part of a thriving faith community more than whatever might happen in them getting married or not. Some of us, I would say probably all of us, need to grow in understanding uh, the issues and conversations around gender identity and gender dysphoria. And there's three authors there for you that have been really helpful for me. Um, Preston Sprinkle, who has written a couple books on this, but also has a podcast called Theology in the Raw. Um, Mark Yarhouse, who has written and taught extensively on gender identity and gender dysphoria. And then Nancy Piercy. I actually haven't read Nancy Piercy, but was recommended to me by someone else. These are people that actually help us. And one of the podcasts I listened to, um, one of the, the women in there who says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a trans woman. She says, I don't identify as a man, as a woman, but more as a man, but trying to faithfully follow Jesus. She said, honestly, for me, People just choosing to use gender-neutral pronouns with me made me less suicidal. It just made me feel less like killing myself. I thought, man, what a, what a beautiful thing we can do for people who are struggling with their gender identity and where suicide rates in that community are very high and in the trans community. And she's someone who's saying, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I need help to do it. And so we need to grow in our understanding of that. I would also say if you're married, don't struggle in your marriage alone. We know we fall short of that ideal that Jesus said, hey, one flesh together forever. We all fall short of it. And so put up your hand and ask for help, not when it's over, but to approach another couple or to approach a single person and say, can you help us? We are trying to do this, but it's hard. <laughs> we need help. And what does it mean to share our griefs and our struggling with no shame, knowing that we are all broken. We all fall short. We all don't fit. So what does it mean to pursue what Jesus has laid out for us together? And so to ask for help. And lastly, for couples who aren't married, to make a revolutionary decision. I've had many couples who have come to me for premarital counseling and they're followers of Jesus. And I'll ask them, okay, are you sexually active? Or if they're living together, are you sexually active? And for those that are followers of Jesus, I say, I want you to try this. I want you to stop. I want you to stop practicing that part of your intimacy together and give that to God and instead cultivate your emotional, mental, and spiritual intimacy, even if you're living together. And tell uh, another friend or a couple who are not followers of Jesus, <laughs> make a revolutionary statement to them. Every single one of them that I've asked them to do this has come back and said, it was amazing for our own relationship to actually stop and wait until we get married. And it was an amazing experience to start in a revolutionary conversation with our friends who were like, wow, that's incredible. Why would you do this? So what would it mean for, mean for you as dating couples or engaged couples or couples who are living together but not married to say, hey, we're not going to be sexually active together. We're going to make a revolutionary statement and say, Jesus, teach us what true belonging looks like in the family of God. Friends, I hope you've realized by the end of this, this is not easy for any of us. Nobody gets a free pass. <laughs> We all find that we fall short of these high ideals that Jesus sets out for us. And yet, as we know, 
Jesus not only raises the bar, he has more grace for all of us as we don't fit and as we fall short. And I believe that in this day, in the middle of the, of the Jesus revolution meeting the sexual revolution, we at the well are being called to form a new kind of community, a family that is open to everyone. Even if we disagree with each other on these things, even if we don't all believe the same things, that we can belong together and try to follow Jesus together. That's why we called our church the well. No fences, just a well. Jesus at the center. And what does it mean to move towards him together? There's a place for